0: You're listening to the Afterburn podcast, episode number twenty-two. Alpha two. Tower, you runway at five. Takeoff. Seat tied. Altitude zero. Eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Five,
1: the aircraft is bonging and making all kind of noises and crazy and in my mind in that split second i hear gunfire i smell stuff the aircraft is acting funny it's making noises i know the fire came from my right side he's dead like that's my instantaneous thought is that the pilot is dead i go to reach the controls i grab them um and within, you know, a moment, I kind of figure out that he's he's still flying. You know, he's making control inputs and stuff.
0: That's the voice of my guest today, Brian Harris. He's an Army officer, and he currently flies H-64 Apaches. In that clip, he's talking about his time flying Kiowas when he was shot on Christmas Day in 2006 in Iraq. He has uh, quite a journey through aviation in the Army. I think you'll like his story. He actually just started a podcast of his own, the Low-Level Hell Podcast, you can find it everywhere you're streaming and lowlevelhellpodcast.com. encourage you to go over there and check that out. This episode is sponsored by Wingman Watch. You've been listening to the episodes. You know, I've partnered with them since the beginning. Founded by a fighter pilot, it's veteran owned. They build incredible timepieces. I truly believe in what they make. I encourage you to swing over to wingmanwatch.com. If you see something you like, you can use the code RAIN10 and receive 10% off your order. Or if you're looking to build a custom watch, they're the place to go. They'll handle all the logistics from start to finish. All you have to do is just say, go and they'll take your idea, design it and then get it out the door. Wingmanwatch.com. Again, swing over there, check them out. Also for those listening, I finally have a website, theafterburnpodcast.com. It'll be growing. We'll bring more content uh, to you. Again, I appreciate all the support. It was a phenomenal 2020 for the podcast. As it just grew and grew, more than I could have imagined. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for going over to iTunes and subscribing and leaving a rating or review. That helped the podcast grow, and it helps it grow today. So, that being said, let's get into the podcast with Brian Harris. Well, Brian, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to hear your story. Uh, helicopters, as we kind of before we got this rolling, they fascinate me. I think they're just bullet RPG magnets. So, <laughs> guys and gals flying around, definitely very brave because you're down in the weeds, but, uh, before you roll into the podcast, would you tell me just a little about who you are, what you're doing today and kind of how you got there?
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. So my name is Brian Harris. Um, I'm an army officer getting ready to retire. I, uh, I started out in tanks. So I was an M one tank platoon leader, did a little time in the mortars and, uh, had always wanted to fly, just, you know, never really pursued it, I guess. And, um, uh, one day, decided, you know what, I want to fly. So I resigned my commission as a, as an army captain and became a warrant officer and went to aviation and, uh, w- learned how to fly Kaiwas. So I flew OH-58 Deltas for, for quite a few years. And then that got divested from the army and I got transitioned to Apache. So I flew that for a couple of years. I did three deployments, one to Afghanistan, two to Iraq, spent a tiny bit of time in Syria and,
0: uh, yeah, getting ready to retire. Well. Oh. Thanks for everything you've done. That's, that's a long, distinguished career. I'm curious, just hearing that, so you had to resign your commission to become a warrant officer to go fly.
1: So, obviously, the Army aviation is a little bit different than um, than everybody else because we've got commissioned and warrant officers, which technically warrant officers are also commissioned, but it's a different rank. And um, in the Army, warrant officers are the primary just flyers, right? They're the guys that are doing most of the the stick wiggling. Commission guys are also flying, but they're in the positions of leadership. So they're going to be your company troop commanders, your staff, uh, and your squadron battalion commanders. Um, For when I was an armor captain, I tried to branch transfer over to aviation as a captain, and it was very very small uh, amount of people got picked up for that. And so I was, I didn't make that cut. And uh, but but at that time, I had the bug in me, right? I was like, I want to do this. And at the time, I didn't have kids. You know, it was quite a quite a pay cut i mean it's like a thousand dollar a month you know pay yeah. cut to go do this but you know my wife was working we didn't have kids so we just said screw it we'll do it um so yeah so that's how that worked and i was a warrant for uh, i guess about four years and decided you know and i i do miss being a commission officer um and i started thinking about life after the army you know what i want to do and uh, so I just kind of, uh, put in some paperwork and said, Hey, I'd like to be a captain again. And at that point, uh, at that point it was 2007 and the army was scrambling for, for commission guys. Cause a yeah. lot of guys were getting out after back-to-back deployments. Um, so they were like, yes, please. Okay. Just sign this paperwork. So I just, I was in the same squadron, you know, the, the <laughs> squadron commander pulled me up. I was a, a CW two and, uh, pinned on captain rank. And he's like, all right, go to work in the staff. Okay. <laughs> so, and then the and then I ended up commanding there as well. So a lot of the warrants that w- that worked for me, we had been boys, you know, yeah. um, on the last deployment. You know, we'd known each other since flight school, so it was it was an interesting dynamic.
0: One thing I gotta go um, fly Lakotas for a day down at Fort Polk, lovely spot. Oh, okay. I'm sure most yeah, I aren't. just left there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most guys would attest to that. But yeah. uh, different, you know, the Air Force structure typically, you know, the squadron commander. And the D.O., the number two guy in the squadron, you know, they're the most seasoned guys. Obviously, they got some staff and things like that. I'm that maybe not the most tactically sound compared to, like, the weapons officer in the squadron. Sure. But they're evaluators and things like that. I found it fascinating that it's typically not the case. You know, the commander of an Army aviation unit is not going to be an evaluator. It's going to be in his warrant right. ranks. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, generally speaking, um, you know, there, there's onesies and twosies that – through chance in their career. For instance, a, a good friend of mine who's getting ready to take over uh, DES. Now, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically the king of all IPs for the army. Um, he, he had been an instructor pilot as a captain. So he's one of those unique birds that had been a squadron battalion commander and been able to do some instruction. But I think at that time too, he's too busy being a commander to actually go do that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, we, we would have a, a senior warrant as the IP. You have a senior safety guy, maintenance, and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the other difference between ours and, and like your structures, the amount of aircraft too, there's a lot going on. You know, if you're a, I mean, I was a captain troop commander and I had 10 aircraft that belonged to me, you know, and my squadron had 30 aircraft. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts, but we'll have, you know, three or four instructor pilots per company or troop out of, you know, and that's out of 20 some odd pilots. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, typically speaking, the, the leadership staff guys don't have a lot of those special qualifiers.
0: The transition from being a tank guy to going to fly. I know obviously you said there was a pay cut and obviously you're going through school. Was that a big transition? Cause you had some, I I don't know, relatively big swings from going to be a warrant officer, then back to being a captain. Was that a difficult (laughs) like transition period? Oh, it was
1: huge. So, I mean, when I left, um, I was at Fort Knox as a captain, And I was a company commander and, uh, and that was part of the problem. I was, I commissioned very young. I was 19 when I pinned on second lieutenant. It was just based on my commissioning source. Um, and so here I am a company. (laughs) Yeah. So I was a, a, a company commander. I was 24, I think I 23 when I took command and, you know, it was a headquarters company. It wasn't anything tactical. Um, but I would just come home at the end of the day, just wore out, like emotionally drained from dealing with, you know, Joe problems, essentially. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, this is not what I joined the Army to do. And I'm I'm too young to feel this old, essentially. And um, and just by chance, because I was at Fort Knox, which was the home of armor, um, but just by chance, I met a couple of aviators. One guy was a retired Cobra guy and another guy was an active duty Apache guy that was stationed there for some odd reason. And, um, it just, that's, you know, the bug kind of bit me again and they were like, well, you know, you can transition. And, and one guy was like, you could go be a warrant. And I'd never thought of that, you know, it never occurred to me. Um, and so again, going back to, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to go do something physical and, and be involved. Um, and right then the war was starting. It was 2003, 2004 timeframe. Um, so, so yeah, so I, so I went from a captain company commander in charge of 150 people to a w1
0: Yeah,
1: that in aviation a w1 is nothing you know that's like a private essentially and um and of course we go into you know they split up our classes and uh first of all it's weird because i walk in i didn't have to go through the warrant officer candidate school i just basically showed up as a w1 and just walked into the room and i was like hey i'm here for flight school and they're like who the hell are you you know yeah um and so they put us in these classes and they pull everyone into class. And, you know, you got all these warrant officers who all used to be something else. And so they're like, okay, if you were an E six or above, raise your hand. So there's like a few of us. All right. E seven or above, raise your hand. So there's like two of us. All right. E eight. And it's just me. And they're like, what were you? And I was like a captain. Like, Oh, you're the class leader. So, so I deal with all that for the rest of Nailing the rest it. of my year. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It was a huge culture shock in a lot of ways, but um. But being a tank guy, you know, obviously I gravitated toward wanting, wanting to fly Apaches because um, it's essentially just a flying yeah. tank. Um, but I also grew up in a, in a cavalry scout um, organization. That was my first unit. And I loved that mission. And that's what Kiowas did. They're the scouts. And so um, it, it was a struggle. But when it finally came time, you know, I was, and I think, number three on the OML. So I, I knew I could get whatever aircraft I wanted. There's only four, basically, options at the time. Uh, so I, so I got the Kiowa and I was happy for it. And then, you know, luckily, unluckily, the Kiowa, like I said, went away several years later. So I did get to fly Apache. So I kind of got to do both. So it was, it
0: was good. Yeah. Both best or, you know, best of both worlds. Yeah. The, um, the fact that you commissioned at 19, how did that end up happening? I
1: went to one of those, um because <laughs> I didn't study hard in school I, to, to be honest the, the, here's the honest answer you know I didn't take school seriously in high school let's just be honest my my grades were not that great um and so when it came time to go to college you know I grew up you know I grew up in the era of watching Top Gun and you know and I wanted to be a I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I grew up around McDill Air Force Base F-16s were everywhere like you know I'd watch them all the time I'm like oh I want to do that um but nobody really told me like well you got to study hard in school <laughs> you know you gotta have good grades um, so I just kind of took it for granted, like, well, I'm gonna join the military, I'm gonna be a pilot. Um, well, when it came time to pick colleges, none of the colleges really wanted me. Um, and then suddenly I get this thing in the mail from this military junior college in Georgia, and it's a two-year commissioning program. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. And they'll take me. In fact, they were even offering me like a, 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 a you know, money to go. So I go to the school and it's basically, you know, it's military school. Um, and they force you to study you know, he had mandatory study hall and things like that. But yeah, you're there for two years and you commission and then you have like two or three years to finish your degree to get your bachelor's degree. So I went to the school and and yeah, a month before my 20th birthday, I pinned on second Lieutenant bars. And then I went and shopped around and found a national guard unit and it was a, an armor cavalry unit. Um, and that's how I got a tank platoon. I just I basically interviewed with this, you know, this captain there. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm about to commission. I'm looking for a job in the guard like yeah, you want to be a tank platoon leader? Yeah, you're gonna tell a 19 year old, do you want to be a tank platoon leader? Yeah. Like, Absolutely, sure. Take this. Yeah. So, so that was that's how that happened.
0: If you had, that's another interesting thing. So you you didn't have a unit you were going to, um, right? Until kind of towards the end of graduating, yeah. if you did not find a unit to go to, would you have just graduated and have a bachelor's degree? And so the way it would work is, like, I didn't have to go to the guard um in fact at
1: the time i feel like i think the rule was they really didn't want you to because they wanted you to focus on your studies But a lot of us were like i'm not wasting two years of you know this whatever this rank um and so i i mean my unit was in south carolina i went to school in florida so i drove five hours to get to my guard duty every weekend and it barely paid for the gas to get there but you know yeah. it's fun um yeah, a,
0: but what would happen in
1: that scenario either way is you finish your bachelor's degree in a set period of time and then you basically apply to go on active duty. Okay. So as soon as I graduated, they pulled me on active duty and they shipped me off to Korea.
0: So and that's where I was. I got to play with mortars. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. And I mean, I know if you're doing it day in and day out, it's probably not that much fun. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's, well, it, <laughs> oh, excuse me. It's very interesting. Um, mortars was a very interesting time because, you know, I'd never, I'd never been around them at all. And, uh, you know, you watch the movies and you see them shooting like thump. No, it's more like an explosion. Like the first time that one of my guns, shot, I had 120 millimeter mortars in my platoon. I had six of them. And the first time we went to the range and that first one we went off, I thought the vehicle had exploded. Like I thought <laughs> something had gone horribly wrong. It was very loud, but it was a lot of fun, um, you know, getting to hang around and, and do good stuff like that. But um, and, and you're kind of this weird animal within the tank battalion that nobody knows what you do. Nobody, nobody messes with you. So you're just kind of like, Hey, we got to go do some training. Like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. It was very, very cool.
0: Well, oh, fascinating. And then you obviously, as you mentioned, you're off the flight school and then you show up in the Kiowa. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about what the Kiowa does, its role and mission? I know you just briefly mentioned earlier, but what's sure. a day in the life of a Kiowa pilot?
1: Yeah. So before all the coin stuff, um, the, the Kiowa is really meant to be, you know, it goes back to the eighties where you you took this older airframe, this OH-58 and you put a, a Essentially, a periscope on top. So, if you've ever seen a Kiowa, it's got this big what we call a mass mounted sight or MMS, and it's a big ball sensor turret on the uh, on the top of the mast. And so, it's got a laser rangefinder designator. It's got a old thermal imaging system, and it it's a scout. So, it's supposed to move forward, find targets, and then laser them and send you know coordinates and things. And it could you know guide old Copperhead uh, laser guided artillery rounds. You could guide Hellfires, things like that. Uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um there was some stuff going on in the Persian Gulf and they decided to take some Kiowas and arm them up uh with uh with rockets and machine guns and stuff. And so you you basically developed the Kiowa warrior. Uh so you could we could have a mix of rockets, 50 cal, or it could be pure rockets, or it could have hellfires. In fact, I think back then they were even putting stingers on to shoot at like Iranian gunboats, you know, because they could yeah. pick up the heat against the, the water. Um so that kind of developed into this armed reconnaissance platform that would, again, just kind of surge forward, work with the Apaches, work with other, other systems. The problem is the Kiowa was always meant to be an interim aircraft. It was never meant to be a full final solution to, you know, the armed reconnaissance. That's what, that's what the Comanche was, if you've heard of that, which was the, fir- the, you know, the first stealth helicopter, I guess. Um, and that was meant to be what was going to happen. In fact, when I went through flight school, we were told like, okay, you know, yeah, you guys are tracked to Kiowas, You'll probably come back here in two years and fly comanches and then about a month later they're like oh hey never mind the comanche just got canceled (laughs) (laughs) and uh you're gonna stay kiowas for a while um but it's it's just that it's a reconnaissance burn and so then coin comes into play well we didn't use half of those capabilities you know we we rarely use the the mass mounted site just because it's very cumbersome to use in that kind of close fight and it's not really meant to look for three dudes on the side of the road you know it's the the thermals were not very good it's not like fleer or something like that um and so we really became kind of a poor man's gunship. We would just kind of fly around with rockets and 50 and maybe a hellfire or two on board, you know, one, one of the aircraft, cause you can only carry so much. Um, and just our, I think our biggest weapon really was our radio and just being available. Cause we were very low, you know, it's, it's not like the jets where, you know, there's always jets around, but the enemy doesn't necessarily see them. And so it's, it, it seemed to me like they just kind of ignored it, you know, like, okay, yeah. yep, I got it. There's jets. But when helicopters helicopter showed up, they knew it, right. They could see us, they could hear us. And a lot of times that was enough to kind of break the fight up a little bit. Uh, it was very few times where we would show up and the bad guys would keep fighting. Um, so I think for us in the coin fight was a lot of just presence, you know, and then occasionally, yeah, we'd have to to shoot at people. And then we could shoot our M4 out the door too. Everyone loved that. So that was a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> I got a couple of buddies who are JTACs and they have stories of, Shooting out the side of those, which just is like mind boggling to me. But I think yeah. you're right. I, I mean, again, I know obviously, as you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, it obviously went through different cycles. But when jets weren't dropping bombs and things like that, and the ROEs were really tight, yeah, you know, bad guys, they hear jets flying overhead. It doesn't phase them because they know nothing's going to happen to them. Um,
1: yeah, they well, the, those guys figure stuff out. And even for us, too, I mean, it's funny how many times, um, you know, they they would talk on these little headsets and stuff or the you know, these little microphones to each other. And a lot of times the special forces guys would be able to intercept that stuff and they'd have translators and they'd know what they're talking about. And they would sometimes tell us like, hey, they think you guys have about 30 minutes of fuel left. So they're trying to wait you out. You know, and I'd look down, I'm like, sure, I got about 30 minutes of fuel left. You know, they they would figure these things out. Yeah. So then you'd have to play games and be like, well, we're gonna act like we're leaving now. And then, then they would start back up and then you come zipping in real quick and trying to try to reacquire, but, but yeah, you're right. They, they would kind of figure stuff out.
0: Yeah. So think you. You have to give them credit. Um, yeah, and I think it really, I think people really saw that with ISIS, just how fast yeah. and how capable they became. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not just when I mean, they're living in mud huts and have no clue, like very smart yeah. and they can capitalize on information and technology to, to leverage their fight. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I like to talk about your first deployment. Uh, when, when was that and where'd you go? Uh, we deployed the summer of
1: 2006, um, up to Missoula, uh, which again, like you said, ISIS, came back in the news later, but, but back then, uh, 2006, we went up to Missoula. We had guys in Missoula, Talafar, which is off to the, uh, West and then down South, uh, to create, I think. But, um, yeah, first deployment, I'd been out of flight school for about two years at that point. And uh, I remember flying into Missoula the first time. We all kind of surged to Talifar and then broke off from there to our different uh, places. And the first time I flew into Missoula, if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, there's a scene where they're flying. They're going back into Mogadishu and, and like the whole city's on fire. Yeah. That's what Missoula looked like as I'm turning <laughs> their corner around this hill. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is where I'm going. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. Um, so but it but it wasn't that bad. It was a really interesting uh, city. You know it's a pretty good size i think it was like 1.4 million people live there or something and you know sort of our day in the life was um we had 24 hour qrf so you would be on some sort of shift that would fit inside that and um you would either be flying we typically just go fly during our qrf period for like four or five hours kind of depending and then uh, the rest of the time you'd sit on the ground and um, just wait for something to happen um interspersed in that sometimes you'd get a deliberate operation so there was some special forces guys there was a ranger company there and they would do these time sensitive target raids and they would come over to us and say hey can you guys support this mission because you know that's the interesting thing about being uh, really any aviation I, I think probably on your end as well you you can play a lot with a lot of different characters um it's not always you know the people talk about the 160th the special operations uh aviation and army in, in army aviation they're not the only ones that do that kind of stuff. You know, they do like the very deliberate tier one type stuff. Sure. Um, But, but so do we sometimes, right? So I've worked with tier one organizations, you know, it's just whoever's around that can help them. So we would do a lot of these uh, sort of raids with these guys. And we even did, you know, a a rescue mission. Uh, Turned out to be a dry hole, unfortunately. But, you know, we do little things like that interspersed in that, or you do some convoy security if they were, you know, passing through the city and things like that. Um, so we flew a lot. I mean, it was, you know, easily 80, 90 hours a month, you know, sometimes more that you were flying. Yeah, it was. It that's was a a, lot. Yeah, that's
0: a lot of flying. Yeah.
1: I mean, it, it really wore on you. And we, and we would do about 10 days straight and then have a day off and then do another 10 days straight of that. And how long? Is, um, and
0: how long is that deployment? Because army typically is a little bit longer deployment than most. Yeah, it was a
1: twelve month deployment. Yeah, well, not for me. It was only six for me, but yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll we can point. talk about <laughs> that. But, um, but yeah, typically the the deployments are were twelve months, and then I, I can't remember what year it was. Obviously, after I started deploying a lot, it was uh, I, they shortened them down to nine months. But you do twelve months, and you'd have a uh, you'd be able to go home on leave for like two weeks, which really turned into almost a month. Because I mean. Flying home, getting to Kuwait, sitting there waiting for a flight. Yeah. Do your two weeks at home. And then, I mean, hell, I was stuck in Kuwait for a week trying to get home to Afghanistan or back to Afghanistan. So
0: the yeah. missions you guys were doing in Missoula, what did those, I mean, I assume it was in and around Missoula. That's where you guys kind of, oh, yeah. you hovered. What was that like? That was, I got to be a busy time 2006, right?
1: Oh, yeah. It was right before the surge, you know, which means that's what caused the surge. Um, it was pretty busy. Missoula was um, interesting because it was a, a pretty much a logistics base. It was a huge, huge airport. Um, and we were kind of the only show in town when it came to combat aviation. There was a couple of medevac birds. Um, and then there was our little troop of of 10 Kiowas. And um, yeah, you would just go fly around and look for trouble. Um, the base would get mortared or rocketed at least once a week, typically a couple times. Um, there was a sniper that would shoot at us at the maintenance guys when they were out working on the aircraft to the point that even today i don't wear a headlamp if i'm ever messing around with aircraft because you just got so used to i don't want to show myself as a target to this guy
0: um in fact i was
1: taking off one time and we were just kind of crossing you know like like perpendicular to the runway just taking off because helicopter and um (laughs) the asphalt on the runway just kicked up all of a sudden and my left seater and i just as we're kind of like passing through etl so we're going around 20 30 knots increasing speed and we're kind of just looking at this asphalt kicking up for a second we We're like what what is that what's wrong and then we realized some somebody called something on the radio and we're like oh somebody just shot at us like we hadn't <laughs> even made it off the base yet you know and some dude just over you know he led us too much and shot and so um but you know our typical day was take off was split by um was that the tigris so they had like a battalion on one side, a battalion on the other. And so you would take off and depending on which side of the river, you know, you'd call it that battalion and say, Hey, you know, this is bootleg three, one we're you know, whatever. And, um, and they would say, Hey, we got a patrol and sector contact them on this free. Can you just go find them and, and call them up and see if they need any help. And if they didn't have anything going on, then we would just kind of fly around the city and look at known, you know, areas where we think they usually were shooting mortars and rockets. Um, you know, you're probably not going to find anything. Um, and just kind of, it was almost like being a traffic cop or a, a B cop, you know, you were just flying around waiting for somebody to call 911 and then you come zipping over there. And, um, you know, I remember, excuse me, one time in particular flying over a convoy of uh, strikers and they had, um, this orange panel VS 17 panel, we call it. And they had written their frequency on top of it and just put it on top of the vehicle. And, and we'd always encourage them to do that because that way we could very easily figure out who they are. Well, we flew past this convoy, and I just remember looking down at them and um, and thinking nothing of it. And as soon as we passed, all of a sudden, we heard this explosion and some machine gun fire. Uh, so we turned around, and sure enough, they had just run right into an ambush right after we flew by. But they had their frequency on the VS 17 so we just tuned them up real quick and just started working with them. So that was kind of a, a typical day, I guess you could say. Um, and that's something to, trouble.
0: like that's something that's so simple. Yeah you know, writing the, the frequency on top of the panel. Cause otherwise you'd have no idea like, Oh, it would take forever. You'd have to call a battalion and say, Hey, who
1: do you have operating up in the North, you know, part of the city and then wait for the RTO to figure out what you're talking about and then go talk to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's always amazing to me. Just sometimes the simplest solution is the easiest and it provides the greatest amount of SA possible. You had one particular yeah. sortie uh, that cut that deployment short. Yeah. So, um, uh, Christmas day uh, 2006
1: um, it's kind of irritating because typically on holidays the the ground forces and sector are on what we call a no roll day so they're just gonna sit in their cops and fobs and you know same thing they're just kind of waiting to see if something happens but they're not going to go out and instigate because who wants to get shot on Christmas day um, so we come into work that morning uh, I think I was yeah I was on the morning shift so we probably showed up around 7 a.m or so and um, and we go in to get our brief and, uh, you know, we're expecting to be told like, Hey, you guys are going to sit at QRF today. Well, they start briefing these, these NAIs named area of interest that they want us to look at. And we're just sitting there and I'm looking at my, but I'm like, are we, are we flying today? Like, I don't understand. Oh yeah. Yeah. You guys just go out for an hour, just go out for an hour and take a look at these, these things. And, you know, just let them know that we're still here. And I'm like, they, they know we're still here. Like we didn't just leave. last night on Christmas <laughs> Eve. Um, And, and, so I was talking to my buddy Cody. We went out and pre-flighted the aircraft. He was gonna be my my wingman. And um, and we were talking. I was like, man, I don't have a good feeling about today. And we'd never had this kind of conversation before ever. And uh like, man, we just, you know, something just doesn't feel right about today. So, whatever, good soldiers. We we get in the aircraft and, and we go fly. And about 30 minutes into the flight, um, we were passing over an area that a couple months prior, one of our company commanders had actually been killed. He'd been shot in the aircraft and killed there. And I remember looking over at that, it was near a mosque, he got shot from a mosque. Um, And I remember seeing that mosque and it was maybe a mile or two off my left. And I remember just thinking like, I don't wanna be in this part of town today. And I turned, and I was not flying, I was sitting in the left seat. um, And my my troop commander was actually flying. And I was, you know, I'm a a W2 and I'm trying to think of a kind way to tell my commander, like, I don't wanna be here, can you go somewhere else? And so I, I was literally turning my head about to say something to him when all of a sudden it sounded like being on a small arms range, like it was loud. And to put that in perspective, a lot of times we would get shot at and have no idea. Um, you'd come back and the aircraft would a hold holes in it and you're like, Oh, I, I guess someone shot at us. You know, it was, it was pretty yeah. rare. This was loud. Um, and you could smell, I mean, I could smell the gunpowder. Um, so we must've overflew this guy just, just right over the top of them. Um, not sure, but some people said there was like three different machine guns shooting at us. Um, but we ran into this aerial ambush and uh, it was chaos. And I got hit probably within the first, you know, like a split second of, of, I heard noise, ouch, that hurts. So I took a, a bullet, a bullet went through the bottom right side of the aircraft. And when it did, it was an armor piercing round. And when it did, it, it split and it, it, of went through the actually went through the collective which is one of the controls that we use to make the thing go up and down um luckily my commander was not holding the collective like he should have been which was right on the throttle which is kind of a twist grip it went right through that twist grip Um, he had had been resting his hand up on the collective head where all the buttons and stuff are Um, so it went up there it kind of scratched him but it split and then it hit me in the forearm the elbow and the the upper arm as well um, so I, I felt that instantaneously. It felt like somebody took a—I uh, was described as a, a hot poker, like you take a hot poker out of the fire and then hit it into your arm with a ball peen hammer. Like that's what it felt like. It, it was not fun. Um, and I remember just feeling kind of outside myself, like oh my god, you know, um, the aircraft is bonging and making all kinds of noises and crazy. And in my mind, in that split second, I hear gunfire, I smell stuff. The aircraft is acting funny. It's making noises. I know the fire came from my right side. He's dead like that's my instantaneous thought is that the pilot is dead I go to reach the controls I grab him, um and within you know a moment I kind of figure out that he's he's still flying you know he's making control inputs and stuff and we're really low I mean we're you know 100 feet if if that um so at this point we try to call our wingman and let him know what happened no answer we call again no answer so my right-seater looks at me and he's like, we, we got to go back for him. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to go back there, <laughs> you know, was just yeah. kind of instantaneous thought. But uh, so we start this, this left-hand turn and we, don't, we didn't fly with doors on the aircraft. So I'm leaning out of the side of the aircraft and I'm looking back and they're right in tucked in right behind us. Well, what had happened was one of the 15 bullets that hit the aircraft, um, one of those bullets had severed the, the radio that we were using, the line for that radio. Um, and we had four radios in the aircraft had two fm one vhf and one UHF. so they call us on the vhf radio which was just atc we were always listening to the tower and uh and they called and they're like hey we're getting shot at and we're like yeah no kidding <laughs> um huh? and uh and so we turned back towards the airfield and i guess that was a good thing about being in Missoula, is we were always five minutes from the runway so so we go cruising back there and at this point my arm is seizing up so you know, your body knows that something's wrong and it'll start reacting. And so, um, like my, my, my veins and stuff were like starting to seize up and it was basically trying to stop blood loss. Like, a, like your body creates a tourniquet essentially. Um, and then my arm started to just kind of seize up and, you know, I couldn't really move it at all. And I couldn't see cause I was so bundled up. Cause again, we don't wear, we don't have doors on and it's freezing cause it's Christmas day and, uh, I can't tell how bad anything is. I'm wearing this big jacket and stuff. And um, I just know it hurts like hell. So we fly back to the airfield and right as we cross over the, the, uh, the fence line, we were just kind of coming in midfield and there was a, a hospital up on the North end of the, the runway. So we crossed over the midfield and um, the trail aircraft call and says, Hey, I think you guys are on fire,
0: <laughs> which is not what you want to hear. <laughs> it's
1: too job to tell you that. Yeah, exactly. You're on, fire, <laughs> you're on Fire. Yeah. So what it was is so many rounds had hit the fuel cell that, you know, they say, well, it's a self-feeling, uh, uh, um, self-sealing fuel cell. I joked that after three rounds, it stopped self-sealing because I think <laughs> we took like five. And so what was happening was fuel was, was coming out of that. And it was just vaporizing into mist because of the speed. And so it looked like smoke. And I just remember I, I looked down at the control. you know, I looked at our TGT and it wasn't really high. And I looked at how much fuel we had and I was like, we're over the runway. I don't really care. Like, you know, we're, we're home. Um, we flew past our maintenance area and the crew chief said that they could see us. They you know they didn't understand why we were flying past them to go further down the runway, but they said it looked like stuff was falling off the aircraft as we passed by. So they knew it wasn't good. And, uh, and we landed at the the cache, the, the combat surgical hospital and uh, some medevac dudes happened to be out there and they ran out there and helped me out of the aircraft and put me on a stretcher. And, and that was it. And I, I left Iraq and that was like I said, 2006 and I never went back until 2000s. 18 and I was up in a reveal. So I got to fly over in Missoula and show guys. I was like, yeah, I got shot over there like, you know, 10 years ago.
0: That's wild. I thought I hated any AI scans, but uh, that takes the cake. You know, it's like, I'm going to go fly just to do the scans. That sucks. (laughs) I won't complain anymore.
1: Well, I guess we found something. We just didn't get to do anything. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's funny. Yeah. So I was in, you know, uh, doing OIR 2014, 2015. Hmm. And just like, I, What's fascinating to me is how long we've been involved in this conflict. Um, so you're there in 06 at Missouille. Uh, my father's actually a, a contract firefighter. He was in Missoula around that time and then uh, a few layers, years later. And then okay. fast forward and I guess it's probably 2015, yeah, the winter of 2015. I remember flying over Missoul and dropping bombs on that airfield. You know, So oh, yeah, it's just wild to see the roller coaster that that's been. Oh, yeah,
1: Missoula. I mean, to go back, I'm really glad that I got to go back and see it because it's so different. And I, and I guess now I know who to blame um, <laughs> because there were so many things that you could tell. You're like, man, somebody dropped a bomb on that. Yeah. I mean, the airfield was completely gone. Some of those big buildings were just complete just rubble. You know, and, and ISIS had done a lot. It wasn't like yep. the U.S. just bombed the city. I mean, there was there was a ton of damage that, that ISIS had done. But, you know, all those bridges were out, and it was, it was crazy to look at. So, yeah, it was wild to go back.
0: We didn't do anything up in Missoula for the first part that I remember, if I remember correctly. I remember flying over it. And as you said, I mean, it's a city or was a city of several million, a million, million and a half people, a large space. And we watched for months just ISIS berm around the entire city with excavators, which to me is just like mind boggling. Uh, You know, you take a city like Atlanta or something like that and just, start yeah. building a wall around it um yeah so yeah, absolutely it's wild you're um i assume your second deployment in the the kiowa wasn't as eventful as the first one no
1: um no not at all so i deployed the second time to afghanistan it was uh 2009 2010 so we went again summer springtime of of 09 and uh in this one i i was a the troop so i was back to being a commission guy at this time so i, I took over a command of a troop and we were up in um Taran uh, which is a little, little fob up, uh, about a hundred miles North of Kandahar up in the mountains. And we did a lot of work, like I was saying, you know, we, we did a lot of work with uh, special ops guys. So there were some Australians and some Dutch, uh, special forces and, uh, the SAS and stuff, and then, uh, some us special forces. So that was a lot of what we did, but, but generally speaking, sa- same kind of schedule, you were just on QRF and you were just flying looking for trouble. Um, you know, I had a few engagements up there. Um, Lost hydraulics twice, which was fun, because um, in the Kiowa, if you lose hydraulics, you can still fly. It's kind of like losing your power steering, but um, you know, it's not. It's still not a good thing. And the problem yeah. with Taran Kout is we we had a dirt runway, so you have an aircraft with skids, and you have a dirt runway, and it was one of these like theoreticals, like, well, what are we gonna do if this happens? And I got to test out what we're actually gonna do. So we, <laughs> there was a there was a UAV strip right next to the runway. Um, which was concrete. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. It also had arrestor cables, like a carrier. So you, you had to know kind of where they were and, and avoid them. And of course it's at night and I'm under goggles trying to land this thing. Um, so that was probably the highest adventure that I could say I had. So it didn't, it didn't quite match. But, but yeah, that was a, another 12 month deployment um, working up there. And um, we, we got away without anyone getting shot up on that one, which was good. Because like I said, that first Iraq deployment we had, One, two, three, three other guys get shot in flight and another guy get hurt with his, uh, a guy from another unit, they, they ran into wires doing a local area orientation. So, so that was a pretty rough deployment.
0: The, did you have any apprehension going back and getting in the, the aircraft and flying around after getting shot and losing buddies on a deployment? Um, yeah, from the deployment side, you know, it wasn't,
1: it wasn't a big deal to get back into just flying. But um, when we deployed sure the first, the first couple weeks, well, we had a tough week getting in there. So when I, mean, I don't know how this is for you guys, but when we show up, you know, the unit that you're replacing is still there. So they're, they're sort of doing this, you know, moving stuff around um trying to figure out where to put you and so the first few days you basically get stuck in these giant tents you know and you're sleeping yep. and, and and waiting for the other unit to leave and we were there i think it was like the third night and a rocket hit the building right next to the tent we were all sleeping in you know and then just for me i'm like oh my god uh, this can't be happening you know like the, that was way too close because kandahar if you i don't know if you've been there but it's huge you know yep. and the idea that a rocket hit that close to you um so yeah I'm, i mean i would argue that there were probably times where i'm like you know i'm probably not going to make it through this one you know um which was silly to think but it's just kind of things that go through your mind um but once i got into it once i got the swing of things going and and like you said the first after the first month or so you you you're, you're kind of in the zone and you know it is what it is so
0: yeah it's interesting i i've thought about it you know flying jets the it's a dangerous business sure. uh but small arms fire things like that it's something you typically just don't really think about probably as much yeah. as you would you think about um, and I think, you know, I've lost a buddy every single assignment I've had. Um, mm. but that's what I've thought about too, is, you know, it's so different or I think it's different. That's what I was always like yeah. yeah, getting shot and being right there, um, and having to go back out the next day or, you know, watching your buddy get shot and helping them. And, you know, it's, you're, it's, it's real, it's right there in person and, yeah. you're, and you're dealing with it. So um the effects of it it's it's got to be a challenge and that's why i mean it's admirable like i don't know if i got shot if i'm like yeah i'm gonna go hop in the helicopter you're gonna know, fly around so it, it's really admirable to-
1: yeah i mean you never know I, everyone kind of reacts to different things differently so you know the story i was just talking to somebody the other day i think it's isn't it the chief of staff of the air force was like shot down in kosovo yep yeah, and then yeah. the very next you know got rescued that night the very next day went to go fly a mission so you know, I think, um, I think everyone's going to react differently. And I, you know, I think back to 2006, we were still figuring stuff out. Like we really didn't have an understanding of the effects that, that combat was having on people. Um, you know, for instance, the guy that was flying with the, you know, I, I mentioned a guy had been shot and killed in the aircraft. The guy he was flying with, he was a very new pilot. Like he was newer than I was. um, and they you know he was back on the schedule like two days later flying and i and i will tell you i you know you could see a change in him a very remarkable change um you know he was a lot more aggressive he was just you know he grew up a lot you know he just matured you know several years from that event um i don't think they do that anymore you know i don't think that they just well we just got to get him back on the horse you know there's a little bit more that goes into it now so that's good but um but yeah, it's it's certainly something that everyone struggles with a little bit differently and some people struggle more.
0: Yeah, I always found like getting back on the horse, at least for me, was like the, the fastest way. Granted, my my situation's I think pale in comparison to sitting next to the guy flying around and he gets shot and killed. Like can't imagine yeah. what that's like. Um yeah. that's that's a tough it's a tough business.
1: Um, but, it is. I mean, like you said, it's it's dangerous just in general. I mean, just taking off is dangerous, you know, whether it's a jet or it's a helicopter you know, a helicopter wants to beat itself to death. You know, you're just, you're just constantly <laughs> fighting it to keep it from doing that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, then you add a little bit of, a little bit of small arms fire and RPG to, to spice it up. And yeah, it gets, it gets old, but, but at the same time you do it every day. And so it just becomes normal and it becomes routine. I remember showing up to my first unit out of flight school and being very excited to go fly. And these guys that were there, they had just come off of deployment and they just weren't excited. And I was like, man, what's wrong with you guys? Like we're flying helicopters, you know? And they're like, yeah. wait till your first deployment and then see how you feel about flying back home. And now I get it. It's like, oh yeah, the FAA. Oh yeah, there, you know, I can't <laughs> fly as low as I want. I can't do this. I can't do that. So um it just becomes routine and and for some people it becomes, you know, almost like a drug. You know, it's like what's what they want to do and they they look for opportunities to do it more often. So
0: yeah, everyone, everyone's different. It's weird. Yeah fascinating stuff your uh, your last deployment was in the apache
1: it was um we did OAR stuff as well like i said we did a short tour yeah it was 2018 we showed up in february and we ended up leaving in june july um there wasn't much going on at that time um <clears throat> we we basically sat qrf and and didn't do a lot of flying um we did have guys in syria so this was around the time uh, well, in fact, during our transition with the, the outgoing unit is the time where that big um, push by uh, Syrians and, you know, quote unquote, Russian contractors. Yeah. And they, they tried to take an oil field. That was like we had one of our crews and one of the unit we were placing crews and they were doing left seat, right seat rides when that happened. And that was insane. Like just watching the gun camera footage from from their engagements. It was it was nuts to watch um but that was i mean that was all hands on deck they were shooting artillery there was jets dropping bombs um in fact I, I still like to make fun of my friend that was there because he had he had actual tanks in his sights and we're like dude when's the last time an apache guy had tanks in his sight <laughs> but the jtac on the ground was like no no i'm, I'm uh, i need you to engage these these personnel over here and he's like man i should have just told that jtac to pound, pound sand and just do what i want to do um but yeah so that was pretty epic and and so that set the the mood for the deployment because we were all like oh my god is is world war three starting and we're like right here yeah um so it was a very intense couple of weeks where we were worried about what was going to happen but it, it kind of died down and then turkey started you know i guess technically invading you know like the, the kurdish <laughs> part of it so then we flexed by sending more apaches deeper into syria to be like hey we're here too don't do this and so you know it was a very strange political time. So it was a boring deployment from the standpoint of flying and, and doing stuff. It was a very interesting deployment from the the leadership slash you know, you, you get you got to see firsthand that you were a strategic asset.
0: You know, yeah, it's you, like yeah. somebody
1: was on TV saying, I think it was the the Peshmerga or whatever were on TV saying, Well, you know, we're shopping around for different allies because we don't think the US is helping us as much. Basically, two days later, I'm pushing 10 Apaches into Syria to say, hey. You remember he said you didn't have enough help this is about as much help as we can give you right now so you got to be a strategic asset and that was pretty interesting
0: yeah unique unique thing for an apache to be a strategic asset but yeah it, it's funny how this, the world dynamics work that <laughs> mm-hmm. uh sort of you're talking about like when you guys were ripping each other out yeah uh, that's like the one where like 100 russians were killed yeah. right that's
1: yeah yeah that was very intense like i said you know we didn't know the ramifications from that and and you know we know that they those guys wanted revenge <laughs> they were looking for where those apaches came from so it got very intense um trying to figure out well, what's the next week two weeks gonna look like so but yeah it was a wild battle it, it's on wikipedia i can't remember what it's called but it's like called the battle of whatever town and and it's a pretty interesting story but yeah there was a lot of stuff going on
0: yeah i'll have to dig it up because i mean i remember news blips about it and like you said a lot of stuff was going on at that time and obviously having the russians show up in Syria a few years prior changes the dynamics significantly. Yeah. And I remember when all those, uh, those contractors or whatever mercenaries, when they were killed, you're wondering what is that going to do? Um, yeah.
1: And I think it's open source that the, the, some those guys were not contractors. Like, I mean, it's, you can, you can find their names on the internet. Like <laughs> they were, you know, they were not contractors, but that's what they got told that they were. So.
0: Yeah. There's a couple things open source. I know like with the Ukraine, it's, it's there's documentaries where they trace these guys back all the way to the depths of Russia, you know? So,
1: well, and there was an article, so I'm I'm happy to talk about it because there was an article that talked about um, that battle in particular. And it was basically titled how to deal with Russia's little green men, you know, and without getting all strategic and stuff here, I know it's not really your focus, but it, it kind of brought that whole Ukraine type situation to light because what happened during that whole situation was, you know, the, the U S and Russia were talking. And so this incident started to occur. Well, U Ru- S called Russia, you know, and said, Hey, do you have guys over there? Oh no, 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 no. That's not our people. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, well, they're not your people. So you probably are not too concerned about what just happened. Right. And so it was a way to say, Hey, you know, you got to play by the rules. So, uh, but that was an interesting article, but yeah, it was, it was a wild time.
0: I need to be like Joe Rogan now and have someone pull it up on the TV so we can look at it. But yeah. Too. You can expand your <laughs> capabilities. Yeah. One day. Yeah. You know. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast before we wrap up. You have started a podcast as well. And I wanted to hear if you can kind of tell everyone a little bit about sure. what, what it is, where they can find it. Um, I think they'll find it fascinating. I know I've enjoyed listening to it thus far.
1: Yeah, I'm glad. Um, yeah. It's called the low level hell podcast. Um, and it, it, you know, I, I guess I could compare it to to yours and, and Jell-O's over at Fighter Pilot Podcast, where it's it's looking at it from a different standpoint of let's talk about the helicopter side of things, and it's not just helicopters. Like we we want to we want to talk pretty, pretty much anything that's air to ground, um, but predominantly right now we're focused on the rotary wing because there is sort of a I guess you could say a gap in knowledge in, in, in general when it comes to that. And there's a lot of there's a rich history there that a lot of people don't know about. And so, um, that's what we're trying to explore. We, we, um, yeah, we just went through some growing pains, um, it, trying to build a website. You and I were talking about this as well, that there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of background that, if, you know, guys like us who never really <laughs> probably looked at doing this and suddenly just had a wild hair and like, you know, I'm starting a podcast. And then you're like, Oh man, this is harder than I thought it was. Um, but we do, uh, we're on Apple on iTunes. We're on, we, we should be getting back on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify. Uh, it's just taking a little bit of time, but we've got our new website up. So it's the low level dot com. and uh, you know, guys can send us questions and things like that. But we just did uh, episode seven is about to come out episode eight. I've already recorded um, and we're kind of exploring across the board. So we've had air force, Navy Marines um, trying to get some, some older guys from Vietnam era and stuff on, on board to talk about their experiences. So um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun and it, for me, it's just, my stories are not fascinating. I mean, they're, they're really not. Um, but I was around a lot of people that they that they really did some wild things. And so I, I don't want that stuff to get forgotten about. And uh, this is just kind of my way of capturing that.
0: Uh, I think it's really important. Obviously, we, we chatted before. I couldn't spell podcast like a year ago. Um, so it's been a huge learning curve. But as you mentioned, like Jello, the fighter pilot podcast, Jello like reached out to me when I first started offering a bunch of help. I think that's one thing that's really cool about this community, whereas some might view it as competition. Um, There's so many stories and there's so many experiences out there, and I do think it's really important to capture it. And so one more person who's doing that, uh, I think, is is a great thing. And again, there's just so much out there. And and a lot happens, just like you say, well, your stories aren't that interesting. Not many people, like I know, can say I got shot and flew back to base, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> that's, that's a significant emotional and significant life event. So uh, yeah. I think it's, I think it's pretty impressive, but yeah, the low level health podcast, again, pretty much everywhere. And then I, I heart radio inbound shortly, but uh, lowlevelhubpodcast.com low too. Right. Yep. Yep, awesome.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I mean, by the time this airs, it'll probably be all sorted out, but uh, yeah, definitely do your homework on domains before you start a podcast, <laughs> figure out when you start moving stuff around, how it's going to affect second and third order effects. So.
0: <laughs> well, Brian, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing your story. I know people are going to find it fascinating. So thanks again and uh, best of luck and look forward to chatting to you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be back in two weeks with another round.